This is Larie Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. so excited to have this conversation. I have been eagerly anticipating this since I first read an, an amazing article about this woman and her amazing work uh, and the value or her examination of the value uh, placed on the labor that black women contribute to community development. Professor Nina Banks, she is an associate professor of economics and an affiliated faculty member in the Department of Women and Gender Studies and in Africana Studies program she co-developed. Uh, her publications focus on social reproduction and migrant households, black Black Women and Work and the Economics of the First Black Economist in the United States, Sadie Tanner Mossel Alexander. Professor Banks teaches courses on U.S. women's economic history, gender, migration, poverty in the U.S. She is also, because there, there clearly was not enough time in her day, she is also uh, the inaugural director of the Bucknell and Ghana Study Abroad Program. Dr. Banks, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, Lurie, thank you for having me on your show. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we have had a, a few economists of African descent on, and I got to be honest with you, I am fascinated, not because I'm good at numbers and not because I have any coursework in econ economics, but because I'm clear about the very important role that black economic economists are playing today. I have to ask you, th this is not a field that many young black girls and boys are encouraged to go into. What drew you to this area of study? Great question. I was drawn for precisely the reason you just stated. There are so few African-Americans in economics. I thought that I could make a difference as mm. an African-American in this, in this discipline. And as you said, very important because economists have a huge impact on public policy, yes. on shaping it. Yes, and, and shaping the good outcomes, shaping the bad outcomes, and then sometimes yeah. interpreting the bad outcomes to read as good when those of us who experience them, I'm thinking Reaganomics, uh, really had a different reality. Uh, sorry, I'm a, I'm a Gen X kid. I'll never get over it. Um, I want to talk about the value of labor. And I want to differentiate labor between the work that we do when we're at our job, getting paid, the household work that we may do just to keep our households running. For black people in general and black women in particular, there is this third category of community-based labor. Can you talk with us about what that looks like and how it shows up in the life of the average black woman today? Yes, thanks. Right. So this is based on an article that I published in December in the Review of Black Political Economy, Black Women's Unpaid Community Work. Mm. Um, I'm As an economist, a feminist economist, we typically focus on the unpaid work that women are performing within their households for other household members, cooking and cleaning and so on. Very important. But when I thought critically about it, what I realized is that it really did not capture a lot of the unpaid work that African-American women historically have been performing for our communities. Mm. And that when we think about what it means to be a woman within the African-American community, it's not just that we face oppression from men within a private household, but we also face oppression as women um, based on our membership in the black community. So that's the underlying basis for this. And so mm. if we look at the history of racial oppression within the United States, 
and the development of Jim Crow segregation and exclusion in the 19th century, what we see is that African-American women in particular have a very long history of performing work to build our communities and to provide services that city officials and state officials are not providing. Mm. It also means that black women have been organizing to provide, um, to, to respond to threats and harms that are posed to our communities. And so my argument is that we've been thinking about these activities as political, as forms of activism. They are, but there's also a lot of unpaid work that goes into it. So I, I have to be honest with you. When I, I read uh, the reports about uh, the work that you were doing and, and just really began thinking more critically about how your thesis is showing up in my own life uh, and in the lives of women that I know, every woman that I know, uh, whether they are in a partnership or not, it has all of those other types of labor, those first two that I mentioned, uh, work for compensation, work within the household. But just about every woman I know is also doing this organizing work, whether it's in the religious spaces, whether it's in uh, organizing, uh, you know, we used to call them rent parties when people had, you know, they were getting kicked out of the house or, or organizing the family around who's going to provide meals for whomever just lost somebody or, or who's going to help meet a need because someone in the community is, is certainly uh, or is suddenly in a state of distress. This type of work is literally constantly happening all around me. And it's, gotten a lot of attention in recent years because organizations like Black Lives Matter literally created out of uh, the work of three women, many of whom are several of whom were part of the queer community as well. Uh, we had uh, earlier last week, we played a clip from one uh, Moses Mouse Jones, who was literally saying it's black women and gay people in the black community who are doing the work of organizing. When we get shot as black men, it's black women doing the organizing. When we have fears about the police, it's black women, queer black people doing the organizing. How did we get to a space where that became almost an unrecognized gendered role in some ways? It's a great question. I think that Black women have always had, have been encouraged to have a sense of social responsibility, responsibility to the community. And, and again, going back to the 19th century, late 19th, early 20th century, one of the things to consider is that black men faced even greater barriers than black women did mm. when it came to professional employment. Yes. Um, so black women were able to become teachers and nurses. And so that gave them a space to be able to perform some of these community services. Mm. Um, right. I think that's really part of it. Um, and because they occupied that space, they were continued. They were encouraged to continue to provide uplift services. That's what they thought. That's what they called it, um, you know, in the club women's movement of the late 19th century. Um, but you are absolutely right. Today, we see a lot of queer people and queer black women in particular um, performing these kinds of activities for the African-American community. 1924, W.B. Du Bois commented on black women's performance of this really important work. And he also and he identified some of the institutions that you mentioned, such as churches, right, and social mm. clubs. Um, but he, he also said that it's the most um, effective work in the social uplift of the lowly in the nation. And he mm. said that there is very little that is known or said about this work. So there's a long history of not thinking about this, 
these activities and not thinking about these activities certainly as work, which, as you said, they are. So many of us are doing this third layer of community work. Now, this is not to say that black men are absent from the organizing conversations and the organizing spaces, but even I think in, in there's been some, I would say, recent schisms within the black community as to uh, either, are we ignoring black men and the work that they do? There, there had been over the course of the past years, uh, at least on social media, conversations that seem to suggest uh, we were focusing on the work that black women were doing in these spaces to the exclusion of black men. How do we strike a balance here that recognizes that there are some gendered distinctions with how we enter this work while still being able to recognize the contributions that all of us are making. Thank you. And, you know, and black men do perform this work. And I think of, you know, the example of the Black Panthers Party Mm. that provided um, free breakfast for underserved children. Mm. Those were both black men and women. Right. But thinking about this in the context of gender is really important because we have to also consider that black men have extremely high rates of of incarceration Mm. and that with mass incarceration, what it meant is that our communities were really stripped of of African-American men. Mm. And so African-American women have had to really bear the burden of this particular form of oppression that strikes against African-American men. Yeah, African-American women are also dealing with, um, are are also arrested and have been arrested at disproportionately high rates, but but higher for black men. Mm. And so I think that that's an important thing to think about. There was a paper that came out a few years ago um, by Justin Wolfers, a white American economist, who noted that 1.5 million African-American men were missing um, from the daily lives of the African-American community wow. because of mass incarceration and early deaths, right? Mm. That goes to the hardship that African-American men are experiencing, but it's African-American women then who are dealing with the fallout from that, mm. right? So. So those are all kinds of, I think, really interesting gendered issues and intersectional issues that we have to think about in the context of of the performance of this work. It's not neglecting black men. It's thinking about it critically from an intersectional standpoint. You know, I'm reminded, well, as I often am in these conversations when mass incarceration comes up, that uh, one of my law professors, Brian Stevenson, always says slavery did not end. It simply evolved and it evolved into in his in his understanding and view of the world into the prison industrial complex. And so that that institution is also largely responsible for detracting from black men's ability to be more effective in how they show up. And in fact, even as you're saying that, I'm reminded in that clip that we played a few days ago, uh, with Mouse Jones, he's like, half of us are locked up. We can't be there. Or we got felonies or we got charges. So we, I literally can't be on the front lines because if I get arrested with you, I'm definitely going to be locked up and not just for showing up at the protest. And so we are still in a, in a moment, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong. I just want to make sure I'm capturing what you said ad- accurately. We're still in a moment when this slavery 2.0 institution is still literally determining who has the ability to engage in the community uplift work that really requires all of us uh, to be there. Is that an accurate understanding of what you're saying? 
That is absolutely accurate. We are still dealing with, as you know, racial oppression and uh, the you know industrial police complex that you that mm. you mentioned is very operative, and it shows up in all kinds of surprising ways, and it affects us not only within the realm of the private household, but also in terms of the community. And again, Black women um, are. Are, are having to do additional work because of this particular form of oppression that disproportionately affects our men. Let's talk about the value of that work in terms of dollars and cents. In the uh, one of the New York Times articles about your work, they referenced uh, this calculator that you, you t- discussed that really, it's a British calculator, I believe, but it allows you to calculate a dollar amount for the type of work uh, that is typically uncompensated. If we were to place a dollar value on some of the labor that you're talking about, what what would we be talking about in terms of numbers here? Do we have a sense of that yet? No, we don't. And that that is something that I hope to be able to do down the road. And this research has actually inspired several groups to try to think about ways to to quantify it. Mm. But quantifying this work is even trickier than quantifying the work within the private household, right? Because within the private household, we can think of a an equivalent amount of work that takes place outside of the household and, and that has a dollar value attached to it, such as daycare workers. And even when we do that, it undervalues mm. that work within the private household. But within the community, Where it gets really tricky is thinking about the value of what people are producing. Mm. So, you know, we can come up with some numbers for, um, you know, the time spent making phone calls, the time spent writing letters, the time spent creating a community garden, for example. Mm. But what we can't quantify effectively is the value of their output Um, because they are producing when they are effective. They're producing racial justice. Mm. Can't quantify that. Um, So that's one part that's tricky. And then the other part is, you know, in terms of the household calculations, we calculate the value and it adds to our gross domestic product. This doesn't add the value of all of this community work that we're talking about, that I'm talking about, doesn't add to the value of our national output because the labor is um, performed in response to economic disparities, mm. threats to our community from policing and harms, environmental harms to our community and underinvestment in our communities that create unmet needs. And so when we calculate all of this, we need a different um, national output assessment that captures social welfare. And then we end up subtracting Right. So we add all of this up. And because it's a negative, we subtract it, subtract Mm. it from the value of our national output um, because it's a harm. And I think that that is really important because then it also indicates um, not only how much labor we are performing that's uncompensated, um, but it also tells us about the the distress that our communities are, are facing and that the state and the private sector need to engage in actions to address those. 
You know, I'm reminded as you speak about that report that came out, I, I want to say it was last fall, uh, that Citibank report that noted that because of racial inequality in the United States, uh, the GDP had, had a $16 trillion loss uh, in GDP over just the past couple of decades. Like it, it wasn't even like $16 trillion ever since the beginning of America. No, it's $16 trillion, just like in the last 15, 20 years that America has lost out on because of racial inequality. And when I think about what it would mean to have an additional $16 trillion in the GDP, and I hear you talking about uh, this labor that we can't quantify, yet we know that by not... Uh, by preserving the system that requires this labor to continue to be done, this country is losing out to the tune of t- tens of trillions of dollars on a regular basis. Uh, and it just, you know, it reminds me also that there are some people who prefer to a, who place a higher value on whiteness in a racial hierarchy than they actually even do on economic interests, which might, if they were paying attention to, uh, cause them to not prize whiteness quite as highly as they do. Am I off in my assessment there? Am, am I no, missing something? you are right on target. And I think that study is really important, right? Because it tells us that we could be, yes, there's this huge monetary loss. And it tells us how much we could have, how much more that we could use to invest in families and communities, mm. right? That's, that's one way of thinking about the cost of racial oppression. Um, and, of course, the cost of racial oppression is borne primarily by those of us who, who experience it and who suffer from it. Um, so, yeah, you're, you're definitely not on target there. But this devou- the other thing I think the, the thing to think about is um, the material and psychological interest of whiteness, mm. right? That's part of what helps to sustain and reproduce this system of oppression over time. Um, So, you know, white women play an important role in this process. We often Mm. talk about white men. White men, white women have also materially benefited and psychologically benefited from the oppression of black women. And I think about it in terms of, of historically their ability to rely on black women as a source of free in the period of slavery, and then low-wage labor mm. to raise their children, to raise white children. And, and even today, the people who um, are domestic workers are primarily women, yes. um, black and brown women, many of whom are immigrants. Yes. There was a a news clipping that someone had shared on social media from like the early 1900s. I want to say it was in North Carolina. And it was a clipping that really talks about what you just said. Women, white women uh, and their husbands were very upset that black women. Oh, that's right. It was the beginning of the war. World War One. Black women whose husbands were going off to war were choosing to stay home and raise their children because their husbands were at war and they were choosing to not work as domestics uh, because they, you know, their families needed attending to and one half. One half of their parenting partners had shipped off to war. White women were so upset because they could not find enough black women to watch their kids. Now, it's not that the white women were going to work. The white women just literally wanted to outsource the raising of their own children, as they had always done during slavery. And they literally began passing ordinances to force women to take jobs, black women, to take up jobs so that the good white ladies uh, would not have to wash their own dishes. Ah, I don't know. Yes. No, that (laughs) is it. That is key. So that Mm. talks about public 
public policy as well. Right. So it goes back to the notion of what it means to be a good woman mm. and a woman. Right. And who's valued. And so so white women have been valued as mothers um, from the dominant society, from white people. And um, but with black women's responsibility as mothers, as caregivers, that has not been valued by mm. white people. White people have perceived black women historically and even today as workers and have shown disregard, utter disregard for the caregiving needs of black women historically mm. and today. And so we had public policies that were in place that excluded black women from gaining access to um, cash assistance from the state and mm. from the federal government. And when black women were able to get cash assistance, um, welfare, there was a backlash. And black That's women right. had to organize for that in the 1960s. And then there's a backlash that starts in the 1970s, and we get the elimination of that AFDC program um, and a different kind of program put into place, um, which is very punitive, right? Mm. All of that is tied to devaluation of black women as caregivers, as mothers. Mm. Um, really important part of this, this process of not seeing the unpaid labor of black women. Wow. Ah, I am so grateful for the work of you and, and the other black economists that we've had a privilege to speak with. I hope we can get you to come back. I think this is a conversation that we need to continue to tease out uh, and unpack as much as possible because I, I and these are my words, not yours. Uh, it's just amazing to me all the labor that we put into trying to fix a system that is intentionally structured and designed to absorb our labor and spit it back to us in, in the form of more oppression. Sometimes I wonder if this, this is where we should be planting those seeds. But that those are my thoughts. <laughs> completely my editorializing. Uh, I will not put those words in your mouth at all. We want to make sure your economy stays well. Uh, so thank you so much, Dr. Banks, for being here and for the work that you're doing. It is vitally, vitally important. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be on your show. 